You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is an extraordinary woman. Her name is Elizabeth McIntosh, and she was one of those extraordinary women who volunteered during World War II for secret activities, the activities conducted by what was called the Office of Special Services, the OSS, and that was the predecessor organization to today's CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, OSS uh, was formed and it lasted through the war and then was dissolved at the end of the war by President Truman. Elizabeth McIntosh served in OSS through the end of the war. Uh, After the war, she joined the new organization, the Central Intelligence Agency, and remained there for another 14 years before retiring from that. And during her time in the OSS, she served in both both, uh, what was called uh, Ceylon, uh, today Sri Lanka, as well as in China, uh, where she was to meet the man she would later marry. Later, uh, Elizabeth kept in touch with many of the women that she'd known, and she wrote a book which is a minor classic in the intelligence field called Sisterhood of Spies, Women of the OSS, and she focused particularly on the women and her colleagues. And in fact, when we began the International Spy Museum, we asked her permission to call one of our galleries Sisterhood of Spies because it was about the women through history who have served uh, served in one way or another uh, in, in forms of espionage. So today I'd like to talk to Elizabeth about her career in OSS. And may I just ask you at the outset, Elizabeth, why did you join OSS? Well, I... uh... I had no idea of of joining it when when the occasion occurred, but I was working for a news service and uh, covered the White House, and uh, I was at one of the uh, president's uh, gatherings that, that they used to have during Roosevelt's time when the press meet meet with everybody, and we had. A, but this gentleman came up to me and uh, uh, said that he was a good friend of my father's. And that he understood that I uh, had uh, been from Hawaii, and I knew I spoke Japanese, which at that point I did. Uh, 
And then he said, would I be interested in working for the government? And uh, <laughs> it was a rather, uh, well, it was a strange place to be asking me this, but uh, I said, well, I'd rather be, meet him in his office and uh, we could talk about it. And uh, he said, uh, well, I can't meet you at my office, but uh, we could meet over at a hotel in Georgetown talk about it. So then, then I, when I did meet him over there, he uh, explained that uh, he worked for a, uh, an organization called the Office of Strategic Services, and that they were uh, they were all over the world, and it was a secret organization. You can't talk about it, but it would be very much, that I, I might be very much interested in the work that they had that uh, I could presumably do. And it sounded so intriguing, and I wanted to get overseas because I hadn't been sent by the service I was working for. So uh, I told him I would be interested, and he said, well, we'll send you the papers, and don't show them to anyone, just uh, just sign them, and and, and then the, I'll meet you over here at a certain day, and we'll go through it. And that's how it started. <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to do or where I was going. So uh, you were... Uh, a by calling a journalist, and that's something you have followed for a number of years. Yes, uh, after I got out of college, my dad was a newspaper man, and uh, he, he. When I got back from college, he uh, got me a job working on the newspaper in Hawaii. That's where I grew up, and uh, I was working in the sports section, which I wasn't very good at. And uh, I eventually got, I, I transferred to different areas and, and finally was picked up by Scripps Howard during Pearl Harbor and worked with uh, Admiral Nimitz and, and uh, the, uh, well, what was going on after, after Pearl in Hawaii. And then from there on, they sent me to Washington to cover the White House, and that's how I got involved in well, I know your your um, your ability to write and to write in an organized fashion served you throughout your career, and I want to come to that in a bit. Let me just uh, uh, skip forward a bit. Where did you actually serve overseas with OSS? Uh, I served first in New Delhi, and then uh, to sort of TDY TDY to, to uh, Ceylon and. Uh, then, for the main portion of the war, I was in China, in Kunming, and uh, that was about it. And I, I know in, in, in all three uh, posts, were you involved in what were called morale operations, or yeah. MO? Yes, I was. In and fact. could you just describe for us what that entailed, what that was about? Yeah. Um, it's it's a a system. It's very difficult to describe because I think it happens all the time now. In 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 uh, well, anyway, uh, you're trying to make people think differently from the way they are, have been brought up. For example, you try to get to the soldiers in the field, the, the enemy soldiers, and make them think that their, their cause is not just that they are going to lose the war, that the uh, people at home are not helping them out. We just try to, to just, just terribly, just to get them all discouraged about what the, the 
problems that they're facing overseas away from home and uh, there's so many th ways you can do it by radio by uh, pamphlet by uh, phony um, newspapers that you print uh, and um, rumors it's just it's got a, a large uh, well you can do just about anything you want to to, to make people unhappy if you know how to do it and you know what the situation is that then you have to have good intelligence to get back to what was bothering them or what would bother them so yeah so and that today would come under the heading of covert action and it would be propaganda operations that would and, be right. and the case you're talking about here would be black propaganda that is <laughs> um you would be printing things or doing a radio broadcast that would pretend to come from the adversary's own station or his own uh, authorities. That's correct, yes. Yeah. So mm -hmm. as you say, you had to know what the real situation was in order to pretend to be somebody writing to that, this. That's exactly right, yeah. And you can't, if once they find out, you know, that you're doing it, you're, you're, you've, you've lost <laughs> the enemy, I mean, you've lost their interest. but. Uh, the, the idea is to try and, and keep as, as quiet a secret as you can to, so that they will not find out where it's coming from. Well, I just, I had occasion uh, in the last week or so to reread your wonderful book, Sisterhood of Spies, and it's uh, published by the Naval Institute Press. And it, it's just uh, extraordinary what the ingenuity that you showed in the morale operations. Um, I'm thinking particularly of at one point you had retrieved letters from Japanese soldiers that had, that had been lost in battle. These are postcards. Yeah, the postcards. Yeah. And you actually uh, were able to mm -hmm. erase the contents, uh -huh. put your own contents in them, <laughs> get them back into the Japanese post. That was a wonderful experience. It really was because I was working with a, an Italian named Bill Magistretti and we were sitting around the office, not much to do, and somebody brought in a whole bunch of stuff that they'd taken out of the uh, out of the uh, jungles in uh, Burma and one of them was a big pack of cards that had been they were kind of wet from the dampness I guess but but they were still they were penciled and they were also in simple Japanese and they had been censored so that, and and stamped so they're ready to go to Japan all addressed and everything so I got the idea why don't we take these letters and these postcards and change the words on them and uh, mm -hmm. instead of saying we're fighting for the glory of the empire and we're going to win the war we'll we put uh, why can't you uh, why can't they send us food we're starving we're running out of ammunition and all and and uh, in one case I decided not to come home I found a beautiful Burmese woman <laughs> just things like that would disturb people at home and uh, we uh, the, the, the process then would be to get them back into the, uh, the circuit to, to get back to the Japanese command in uh, uh, Thailand and uh, so we worked that through our own people in Burma and they put it in, into the Japanese system by uh, I think they uh, yeah they were able to do it through uh, killing off one of the uh, <laughs> couriers and sticking these postcards in the in the sack and then reporting the the death to the to the Japanese command next 
stop or something. And it worked. It went. And, and you were one of the ones who thought up these devious ideas to, yeah, we, to, was, to affect the thinking, in this case, of yeah. Japanese. It was fun, in, in a way. It was, but uh, it was, it, I felt like we were really getting to the Japanese well, people for the first time. Well, it certainly sounds like it. You know, one of the things that comes out so strongly in your book is a, a just this tremendous esprit, this sense of, of, of all being in it together and sacrificing a great deal. In some cases, uh, many of you worked long hours in terrible conditions, but uh, nobody complained. There was a, a lively sense of humor and an enormous sense of commitment. That is correct. And I, I just, I, it may have been wartime, and it might have just been the kind of people that we were associating with but they were all dedicated to what, what they believed would be an important phase of our wartime fighting. And, uh, and, and in many cases, it, was, uh, it, it did prove effective. Like there was one time when we were able to rework a Japanese order uh, telling the troops when they, uh, what, what they, how they had to operate during the war. They had to fight to the very last. They had to fight for the emperor, and they would not uh, accept, or they would not, uh, even if they were running out of any ammunition or anything, they had to uh, keep on going. And, and if they did surrender, or they would be shot by the Japanese when they were caught. It was a really a criminal way of looking at war, but uh, we were able to get this uh, Japanese order, and we, by a real wonderful uh, chance, Bill Magistretti and I went to the the the, Jap the British fort where they kept the Japanese prisoners, and they said there was one man there who had been with the Japanese uh, higher command, and and he would be able to help us write this order if we wanted to. So. Uh, we took this. My, I, I wrote the order as, as I thought it would be, should be, about when you can surrender and everything. And then uh, uh, we took it to this chap. And the amazing part was that when he we walked in, he wouldn't look at us. He was looking out the window. And then when Bill walked over towards him, he looked around, and then all of a sudden, a big smile on his face. And then he said, "Biro, oh, biro magistrati in Japanese, and it was. He and, and Bill had been in the same Waseda University together in Tokyo, and they were friends. And from that time on, this chap worked with us, and we were able to get this order out. And he, and it went into the field up in, in northern Burma. So you actually forged an order that uh, uh, it, uh, was in effect telling the troops that it's okay in certain conditions to surrender. Exactly. Whereas before they had strict orders in no case to surrender. Yes. And I think you learned later that that actually had an effect. It did in, in yeah. northern Burma. That's yeah. right. You and, and so you not only captured the order, you forged a new one, which raised an interesting question. You speak Japanese, don't you? I did. <laughs> I'd forgotten most and of where that. Did you, where did you, I was struck by the fact that so many of the women had multiple languages. Mm -hmm. In some cases, they'd been educated in Europe. They had French and German. Mm -hmm. But there are other women with other languages. Mm. Where did you acquire your Japanese? Well, when I was in Hawaii, uh, I wanted to go to Japan as a newspaper correspondent. This was before the war. And uh, so I decided I'd live with a Japanese family for a couple of years. 
they, he was also a, a professor. He had a Japanese language school. And so I lived there, and when I'd worked on a paper, and then I'd come home at night, and then we'd have classes and just live Japanese style. And, and, and by, in two years, I was able to do pretty well. I never could do the writing. It just was too much for me. But I, I did get the, the Japanese language down at that point in time. It's amazing how much it leaves you now, though, I'm afraid. Well, it's hard, I think, uh, even maintaining our own language as, as, we, as we go on. But you, I, and, I, and I certainly had a sense with so many of the, the people who served in OSS, but of course you're focusing particularly on the women, but you, you highlight a number of the men also. But this tremendous sense of accomplishment as the war ended, because you were, uh, you were there and, and at the time of the eventual Japanese surrender. Mm-hmm. Yes. Actually, we we were working on a a, a announce, radio announcement. We had a a, a Japanese uh, kind of a uh, oh, he was a uh, we called him the hermit, and he would predict things that were going to happen. And this is in Japanese, of course, for the Japanese soldiers. And we were trying to think of something really exciting for him to predict. And this was about two or three days before the end of the war and before Hiroshima. And uh, so I said, well, what, let's have a great big earthquake or something. Oh, no, said Bill, Bill Magistrate. Said, no, that's, that's too, uh, so they have them all the time. And I said, well, let's, let's just say that something, ter- that the stars have to- told the hermit that something terrible is going to happen to Japan, something that we can't even tell you how awful it is, but it's going to happen to a Japanese city in the first uh, month of uh, April or whatever it was that we... I think it was dropped. August. August, yes, August, yeah. that was it, yeah. And uh, so Bill picked it up. We, we did that and ran it a couple of days before Pearl Harbor. I mean, before Pearl, before... Uh, Hiroshima. Hiroshima. Yeah. And uh, this was fine. It was sort of scary in a way because of what happened. But we were also called on the, on the carpet by Colonel Hepner, who said, where in the world did you find out about that? That was top secret, <laughs> We just made it up. Yeah, you hadn't found out about <laughs> no, it at all. It was no. just another bit of propaganda. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what led you, uh, in the end, to to write the book and, and look back particularly at the roles of the women? Well, I wrote the first book uh, called Undercover Girl when I first got out of the service because I didn't have anything else to do. And that was about women, too, but it was more... It, we there was no uh, uh, well there was uh, General Donovan helped me write it because he wanted to be sure I got everything straight and it was about women but it was not quite as I didn't go into details the way I did the second book and uh, but uh, it started me thinking that it was the women did so much for OSS and and uh, for the war that they should be remembered so that. that produce two books. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, and I, I hope you don't mind if I ask you a personal question, because I think there'll, there'll be a lot of women, young women, mm-hmm. older women, men, listening to this to this uh, spy cast, and I, I would just ask you how old you are now. <laughs> That's unfair. <laughs> I am now 94. That's wonderful, because that means that you wrote that book when you were about in your early 80s. You were, you were 83 or 84. Mm-hmm. 
And I think uh, the fact that you did that, and you did two books. Mm -hmm. Was The Undercover Girl written soon after you left OSS and then, yes. and then this book later? Yes, very soon afterwards. Yeah. Well, then I've got to ask you another personal question. Do you have another book you're doing right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been doing children's books, and I've done a couple of those. But Have you? Uh, yeah. But when, when, uh, can you give us the titles? One is called Inky. It's about a seeing-eye puppy that... I grew, uh, wish I uh, uh, took over from the seeing eye people to, to grow, uh, to develop for, for nine months to, so that they could take him. And the idea in the story was that the, the father came home blinded from war and, the, and we kept the dog. And it was, they're using that book now in all of the different uh, uh, places where the soldiers go to uh, for, for rehabilitation yes yes and they've got they use that there anyway inky's being used now the other was palace under the sea and uh, that was about uh, underwaters diving off of turkey i did a lot of that once when i well, I, I mean, my sense is if you get bored here, then you're going to do another one. That just, just seems to be your <laughs> yeah, your response. <laughs> I am doing one on, on squirrels, but I can't, <laughs> I can't tell you what it's about yet. Well, okay, <laughs> then I'm not going to pry any further. I'm, I'm going to ask you uh, one last question. Um, given your experiences in OSS, which were extraordinary in wartime, and in the CIA, some 14 years in the CIA, which was, of course, during the heyday of the Cold War. If you were speaking to, to people today, particularly young people, so many young people are looking for careers, and many of them are looking to serve their country, to make a contribution of some kind. What would be your guidance if, if people were to think about going into the national security field as you did? I would hardly endorse it if they really... Well, I think that you have to have certain qualifications, and I believe language is very important. In uh, especially, especially if you wanted to have in the, the Middle East now, and you should learn some Muslim form of speech, uh, and also, I th I think we're going to need more people going in the way the British did it in the beginning of, or the end of the war. They just stayed where they were and lived in the community, and that their intelligence was right, really basic from that time on. And we don't do that. We, we go in, move around for two years, and then come out. But I would believe, if they could think about it, to, to make the people stay there and become part of the country and, and do some sort of business or whatever. And, uh, and, and that way you get to know the people and know what the problems were and be able to operate much better. And certainly, I, I think it comes out so clearly in your book, and even just talking to you today, um, you, you've come away with your experiences with a great sense of personal satisfaction and achievement and contribution to your country. Yes, I do feel like it, it was well worth it. Well, I, I'm just going to take this occasion, if I may, Elizabeth, to thank you so much for your service to our country. It's been wonderful talking to you today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. 
That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. Now. 